I saw a post from these guys, so and you know what? I'm, the only reason I normally go to the LinkedIn post. Yeah. But then they'll know I looked at their LinkedIn and I'll inevitably get a business development message or something like that from I, them. And I'm like, I, yeah. I don't really want to go and look at the page, but the post is on their page. I'm like, what? That and now is I'm like the problem with LinkedIn. Well, I gotta like, buy the premium. I'm just around. I'm just like I love it. I'm cheap like my dad. I'm like, ah, I'm just not gonna buy the premium. I don't need the premium account. But if I had the premium, I could probably creep there and like yeah. they would never know. And then I'd be like, that's the stuff I'm looking for. Welcome to The Axe Change, the official podcast of the Fred C. Manning School of Business at Acadia University, Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Acadia University is a member of the Maple League, a consortium of premier primarily undergraduate universities that consistently rank highest for educational quality in Canada. The School of Business at Acadia University is named after Fred C. Manning, the first person in Canada to receive the honor of having a business school named after him. To learn more, please visit the website at business.acadiau.ca. My name is Brendan McNeil, and I will be your host. I am a fourth-year finance student here at Acadia with a passion for interviewing interesting people. And today we have a somewhat quite interesting person, an immigrant by the name of Savior Joseph, who has come originally from Deer Lake in Newfoundland, surprisingly enough and has made his career for himself in Halifax, Nova Scotia at a company called Color.ca, a digital marketing agency whose founder and CEO I have previously interviewed named Chris Kievel. That interview can be found on our SoundCloud. Today, Xavier and I talk about his humble beginnings in Deer Lake, Newfoundland and how they gave him perspective and appreciation for the world and influence his position as president of Color.ca and now is the president and founder of his company, Breathing Green Solutions, a cannabis retailer in Nova Scotia. Now, on to the podcast. Surprised you're not a premium LinkedIn guy. I mean, I thought all professionals had a bit. You know what? It's a good point. I um, I think as my career has grown, my wife has been smart to coach me a little bit on. Yeah. People will find you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You like, don't need all the tools and the. And I think and she's aware of my personality enough to know yeah. that, um, out of respect for people, I try to engage with everybody. So, I'll tr- like, I will try to make time to meet or to talk to Which everybody. Can really be a problem when you when you when you're the man of the hour. Well, if you're busy, right? And I mean, yeah. I just think that, um, and it actually was a hard thing for me to go through when I trans- transitioned into jobs that I had more responsibility and took more time. Yeah. Was that when people, students. Yeah. from different schools or from all places just want to have a cup of coffee yeah finding the time right because you care a lot yeah right to want to do it but it's like oh my god i can eat in three weeks yeah do you know what i mean or something which like is that. a whole lot better than nothing though nothing, it's right, better than it, a decline yeah, yeah yeah and i'm curious because like I, that's a personal conflict for me when i'm reaching out to a lot of a lot of professionals who not only have a full professional life but if they're affiliated with the university they have a, another dozen i'm a dime a dozen like students coming up to them like is there what like what is the way to to deal with that because you want to say yes every one of them and or let them down gently but like do you just need to schedule them out further i think so people always made time for me yeah right do you know what i mean and i don't think i've ever been in a position like i don't feel like i'm the prime minister of canada yeah do you know what i mean where i am in such a position that i just can't do that yeah Yeah. do you know what i mean like so i never thought of myself um at that type of level um, and so I always felt like, okay, I have to make time. And maybe it's Saturday morning. So the sacrifice came at the cost of sometimes my own sleep, 
or my own health or something that I wanted to do yeah. or sometimes for my family so sometimes it would be like okay if you want to meet me let's meet Saturday morning let's meet Sunday morning let's meet you know yeah. and I would try and bridge it around family things and other things but inevitably you know I got up a little early and Stuck yeah. out of the house and had the meeting and, and did the things that I wanted to do to try and be responsible. Yeah. Or feel like, again, like I had the privilege of people doing that for me. Yeah. So I want to make sure I kind of pay it forward a little bit the same yeah. way. So that's how I tried to do it. Um, I don't think I've missed too many people, actually. Something probably I'm pretty proud of. I think in, maybe there's been a few emails over the years that I might have never... Yeah, mine I, I, might have fed into the junk Might have got slipped through. Yeah, might have got slipped through. But for the most part, I absolutely um, try to do my best. And I, I always will cont I'll continue to try to do that, actually. Yeah, so I want to... I'll come back to the topic of, of balancing your time because that's a very important thing. And, and I know you mentioned it last time when... I think it was one of one of my friends. I think it was Yoram that asked you this question yeah, about, about yeah. balancing time. Yeah. Um, but first, uh, on the note of people always made time for you, and I'm sure that that probably began back at your roots in in Deer Lake, Newfoundland. That's right. Was there like noteworthy steps that that occurred and and things or people in your life? Uh, in Newfoundland that kind of enabled you to come up uh, into this region and into your professional career? Uh, I, I would say that upbringing uh, probably more than anything single thing and I give a lot of credit to Acadia and a lot of other people as well too along that path but I think uh, that grounding uh, was by far uh, I think the most important thing. Um, you know, it teaches you how to treat people. There was a, a whole variety of socioeconomic classes that I, I had friends with. So you appreciated people who didn't have as much and that you were able to feel like if you had extra, you would want to give to be part of that community and to, to do those things. And you'd hope that they would do the same thing for you if you were in the same situation. So it was very much um, uh, an environment like that of family, yeah. I guess, is the way it, because it's such a small place. And I think especially as um, immigrants flying into this little town and you know we were one of two colored families I think in the entire town wow. yeah and there's like I don't know there's like 35 Indian families in the whole province or something do you know what I mean so to go to this little town yeah. and and now if you went back there I, I tell people like if you want a good Indian curry go to Deer Lake Newfoundland there's probably about 2,000 people there no, uh, that can cook a curry because yeah. my mother was a doctor there and we lived there for so many years yeah. and and, um, and I think uh, my mother and father I think their background they care deeply about uh, about people and they, they the values I think that I try to speak about I think they embody even more yeah um, and so I think when you're those type of people you um, you get what you give yeah and so I think it's it's come back I think in spades yeah, exactly and speaking from a personal experience it's good that we can share these two experiences because I was born and raised as a Canadian in Canada in, in Quispam City Brunswick mm -hmm. outside St. John and so from personal experience I mean we had did you say uh, was it Ian Felmy say your name in university was Sage or Saj 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 yeah so Savior Alex Joseph S-A-J oh, oh Saj yeah so there is a um, Middle East Saudi Arabian yeah they're Saudi uh, family yeah. like three houses down the street from me uh and his name is Saj as well. Oh, that's cool. hilarious. But to that's use great. to use them as an anecdote, like they they came into our community and they wanted to be a part of it. We have a block party, and they were out there. They brought food. They brought their dishes. Yeah. And, and that I feel like that's a universal culture in Canada of 
when the immigrants come with such enthusiasm to be here and openness to engage in our culture, then it's reciprocated because we're open people, but also because we want to we give that back. And so I'm so curious that you you saw in your lifetime, uh, dear, like go from two Indian families to two thousand, like well, no, no, well, two thousand and cook a curry, two thousand cook a curry, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. okay. But have you seen such uh, an increase in immigration in your lifetime? I think. Um, I think it's definitely increased. Yeah. I think maybe what's happened um, a bit is it's it's um, in smaller communities like that. And I think when immigrants come in and they get welcomed in the right way, they become part of the fabric. Yeah. And so what I think it really does is it breaks down racism and it breaks yeah. down prejudices and it breaks down all those things because guess what? We have sleepovers together with friends. We're playing hockey together. Where you become one of those people. Like I am, probably I'm more Newfoundlander than anything else. I yeah. grew up there. I was born there. I can drink a few beer. I can have a lot of fun. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I, exactly. you know, that would be uh, like core to me. Yeah. And core to those people and, and and who they are and why I love them so much. So I think, um, in smaller places where. Uh, people are like that and you get integrated like that, it breaks down all the, a lot of the barriers. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think the problems sometimes happen when we go into places and they're completely separate. And so all of a sudden there's a group of immigrants that live over here. And it's not integrated in exactly the same type of way. And so the friendships don't happen in the same type of way. Yeah. And so therefore prejudices and walls then get built up around what makes those people different, what makes me and how I'm better and how they're not better and all of the problems that come with that, um, you know, with humanity, I guess. Yeah. And so I think that, uh, you know, I was fortunate, like your, like your friend that you talked about, yeah. to come into a place that was very welcoming and, and all those things. And I think my family was able to bring some, some needed skills and value uh, into those communities that, was, that were appreciated. Yes. And, and I would say it wasn't always easy. We certainly had, you know, um, I would say especially as uh, success comes, uh, it, it breeds jealousy in people and so I think that you would have had and I, would, I think this would be a common story for certain people of like being cautious about how much you flaunt it or being yeah. cautious about what you say to people or how you, you showcase So you may people. trigger those prejudices and racism come well, back. You come from away you yeah. look different and yeah. you're doing better than all of the people around you. Yeah. Right? And and some of them won't say well you worked harder you you put the invested the effort you you it was your risk it was your ideas it was yeah. you, you earned all of those things. They necessarily won't see it that way they will see it as you came from another place and you are doing better than I'm doing and I'm actually born of here yeah right and I think those are those are challenges like a, a really good example of when I would have saw that in another context just to give it to you outside of Canada even to just say this is a human condition so I'm working in West Africa with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and Right to Play this was my first job out of Acadia and one of the big problems was refugees uh, by the very nature of, of what they're supposed to be under the UN Charter is is temporary there's a war in your country you have to flee your country for safety another country welcomes you a group of organizations come together to provide the support, whether it's housing, healthcare, education, food, yeah. to be able to let you live in these temporary homes that have been created for you until peace, ideally, comes to play in your country. And then the idea is you're supposed to go back. What inevitably happens is these wars do not end. The conflicts do not end. So generations of people are being born yeah. in these temporary places. In, in Ghana, where I was working with the UN, there were three refugee camps, I believe, in the country at the time. And uh, some of the refugees, most, a lot of them came from Liberia and Sierra Leone and places like that, so West African countries, but others came from as far away as like um, Congo and places like that. So you think of like walking from Florida to Nova Scotia to escape this stuff. Oh, crazy, yeah. right? And then, so you come into these, these communities 
and the UN comes and they give you a house and um, the uh, National Catholic, Catholic Secretariat comes and they give some health care. Red Cross shows up and they provide some stuff. Uh, the World Food Program shows up and they give you food rations. Okay, So this is all happening to refugees, people from another country. Meanwhile, the local people are still very poor. Yeah. Okay, wow. So they're sitting in their communities and they're this, basically this town got dropped you know, a kilometer down the road. Do you know what I mean? And it's all gated and it's got, you know, they're building stuff and there's food rations and there's trucks and there's all these things kind of happening there. And these people are still living in very poor conditions, right? And so what ends up getting created is is absolutely uh, jealousy and frustration and resentment. And I think after a few years, you could be a little bit like, okay, I get it. If a war was in my country and I had to flee, I would want someone to welcome me and take me in and help me. But after 40 years or 30 years or 20 years, um, and they're getting free stuff, and my kids aren't doing very well. And now I'm seeing those people fishing and cutting down my trees and starting to step into some of my areas. Yeah. I get, you know, very protective, I think, is what ends up happening. Yeah. And so you get refugees in those contexts and locals um, killing each other in some cases. Right? And are there so steps? it's another example of the same thing. Yeah. In a, in a completely different country, just to I, I give you the premise that this is, I think, a human. Yeah condition that happens that can happen anywhere yeah absolutely and, and those people look exactly the same almost like if you looked at them you would say my god you're fighting with yourself when you come here it's like well at least there's a premises at least those people look at least completely different do you know what i mean and so it's it's more natural to assume how racism or prejudices could happen but even in an environment where people look the same when it comes down to it there are lines drawn around people from away and people who are born and and how those are viewed i think differently as people yeah and so tell me about how you ended up at acadia through all this well ah, so prior to your adventures to africa yeah yeah so i um so i guess when i um <laughs> my dad was a, a quite a good soccer player and he was a, he did his masters at reading in england and then and he was a teacher so he ended up settling in newfoundland my mother was a doctor she got her kind of uh, medical degree in india came to newfoundland did her uh, updates at memorial and then practiced medicine and so Growing up, uh, they were always very uh, driven to give us a better better opportunity for life. I mean, they moved from their country and their entire family to come to another place. Yeah. So the purpose was, and the only reason was, there's more opportunity for our children in this place than in the place that we were. Yeah. Otherwise, why would we ever give up that? Yeah. So the fact that I think um, that was one big part of it. So they spent a lot of time working with us and shaping us and pushing us to be the best we could be from a very young age yeah. in everything. Do you know what I mean? It, it was it was very much that type of a I call it like a high performance but loving environment. Do you know what I mean? So um, that happened from a very very young age with them, and I think my dad, as a former soccer player, realized that in Newfoundland it snows a lot, <laughs> so I probably wasn't going to be a soccer star. And I got quite good at hockey, but I think at a certain point when I was I think about twelve or thirteen, I was playing both hockey and basketball, both very close to the same level. And I think my parents kind of realized at that point, it's like, you should choose one if you want to get really good at it. And hockey maybe might not be the best choice. They might have been a bit biased in my size and their genetics. Yeah, yeah. I think they were also a bit biased that it was cold and practices were early and all, and all those kind yeah. of things, too. I, would, I wouldn't say that to them now, but I think kind of that probably ran through their head. As a parent, some of those things run through my head, too. So, so I think I chose basketball at that point, and I had a great great coaching and great system. It was a great place to, to develop. My dad was a teacher, so we had a key to the gym. He got passionate about it. Um, my godfather, who was a teacher, and, and his son was my best friend. Uh, he was a great player, and they were great coaches and all those things. So I had just a great environment of excelling yeah. in basketball. And so um, by the time I got 
I think grade 12, I was you know, on provincial teams and doing all those things, I was getting recruited. So I had letters coming from Memorial and Acadia and a few schools in the States and some different things like St. Evax and a few places like that, um, that were just, you know, some very interested, some just, I think they send letters to every kid who ever played basketball. Yeah, or something, yeah. right? So so I've got all those things, which, was, but as a high school kid, I think it was a beautiful time because you're like, wow, I'm getting letters in the mail from people who want me to come to their school. So important. And yeah, it's so important. Like, this is great. And some of them were great. Like, Acadia was great. They flew me up. You were allowed to do things like that at that time. St. Mary's and some other schools did some similar things where I could come up for a visit. And so, um, you know, Dave Nup Brown, who was the coach here, and he's a, he's a legendary coach. Um, I think his values were very much aligned with the way that I was raised in up mm -hmm. so he was going to tell it to me straight um do you know what i mean there was gonna be no politics or anything in, in our discussions and it was up to me if i wanted to be what i wanted to be yeah. and i think he would just give me the opportunity and and all the coaching and, and expertise but he like my um like my father and mother or, or like some of the coaches i had in high school um i think he took that kind of performance approach to a whole nother kind of level yeah. and to get the best out of you and to, and to push yourself and so I kind of joke it's like uh, if you watch the movie 300 and and like they're like the kids are in Sparta and they're like banging the shield and they're like yeah. it's like okay well those kids were shaped to be warriors obviously like that's that's the whole purpose right? so I think kind of my upbringing a lot um, was so much tied to leadership and teams um, because of that and so he was by far I think the best fit so the other schools actually some of them offered more and and did other things and whatever else but um i i, I think i was lucky enough that i had again a good family in the background that was like that's the person yeah. that we trust you going to play for yeah and being a part of every single day and you know and and, and it was a, probably the best decision maybe one of the best decisions i ever made in my life maybe next to getting married and, and picking my wife but yeah, uh but, but it's, it's right up there but um and and i think you know he took me under his wing and and uh you know from the first day and i was a, a real good player in high school like i was student year for the province I was captain of the you know, provincial teams and uh, and all those kind of different things and uh, when he took me here uh, he said to me he said uh, you know I got 18 players on my team you're number 18 so you're on the team what you make of it is is what you make of it and so I was just you know like those things I I, uh, I appreciate it no one told me I was better than I was. No one told me any different. And it was up to me if I wanted to put the work in or do the things that were, were needed to do. So that, you know, that kind of just helped take it to the next level. And that's, that's why and, and how I picked Acadia. And then when I got here, interestingly enough, he, um, the first person I met on campus was Walter Eisner. Right, who was a former director of the business school, yes. and then used to run all the entrepreneurship programs and all those things. Who became, you know, a, a great friend of mine through school and a big supporter and, and and all those kind of things. So, and he spent I think an hour and a half with me in our first meeting. Wow. And when I felt the care for my education, uh, at the same level that I felt the care for my let's call it leadership capabilities, skill building in basketball, competitiveness, all the things that are going to come out of that environment, I'm like, okay, well these things are all starting to come together. In the, in, in the right way for, for what my education can be. And to bring this back to the question that Yoram asked you last night when you were speaking at the business banquet, <clears throat> it's like, it's one thing to have these values of the work ethic and, and striving for a better self, like ingrained in you, but it's a, it's a whole other thing, especially in a university environment, to consist, consistently apply yourself and to balance between basketball and, and studies. And then now in your professional life, to balance between meeting people for coffee and, and family and, and, and work. Is there a strategies that you used or ways, um, and I suppose this would have evolved as well from university yeah, to Yeah, yeah, you got career. more experience for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So initially, um, I'm a, I think I said this last night, I'm a nuclear reactor was my view, and I have energy unlimited. And so I will put it all, and it was like, it was true. Like I think I genetically, or maybe my metabolism's a bit messed up, or, or whatever it is, uh, but um, you know, my mind doesn't stop. Yeah, even today it doesn't like I don't sleep a ton or any of those kind of things like I'm just wired a certain way I think and that's just kind of the way it is I probably for me yeah. um, that's not to say that there's things I couldn't be doing to better practice balancing uh, appropriately but I'm also I think uh, very passionate about what I'm doing so what I've gotten to is uh, early in my career was I'm just going to put the energy in, right and later in my career as I got more experienced I realized um being more strategic about where I put the energy and how much energy I put into different things mm -hmm. would be the better choice. So as opposed to maybe when I was younger, it's like everyone's getting all the energy, like I'm, I'm operating at a high, high, high level all the time. Yeah. I think what I realized is as I got older was there are certain times where I need to be more active and my energy needs to peak. And there are certain times where I need to be a little less active and where I balance it out. Now maybe I'm still in discussions with people or whatever else it is, mm -hmm. but I'm uh, strategically balancing that as it relates to kind of my own feelings and my own health and all those things. And I think, and my father-in-law gave me the great, uh, the greatest, one of the greatest lessons, I think, uh, at a very young age. And so I, I met this girl at Acadia, she's a Bahamian. Her dad um, in the Bahamas uh, became the senior vice president of conventions and catering for the Atlantis Hotel in the Bahamas. So it's, it was the biggest hotel, I think, maybe in the world, or one of the biggest hotels in the world, like 5,000 rooms. Wow. And he led, I think there's like 25 restaurants and like fine dining to burgers and pools. And so I think he led all uh, conventions and catering. So when the Prime Minister of, of, South, Amer of, uh, of South Africa, I was there for this, mm -hmm. wanted to come to meet with the Prime Minister of the Bahamas, it happened at that location. His teams organize the events, they do all those kind of things. So, you know, my, my amazing wife, I don't know if you should put this publicly or not, she might know what we say, but she's got pictures at home with P. Diddy and, and you know, I've met NBA players just through her dad who runs these things because he's the guy. He's yeah. the guy who oversees all of this stuff at that hotel. He was at the time until he kind of retired. And so when I would, uh, you know, I met her in university, and the first time she brought me home, and I'd been to the Bahamas about 13, 15 times, um, Alima would pick us up at the airport uh, because her dad was so busy working, drive us to their house, okay? And this is the house that he bought with his wife when they were 20 years old, okay? Same house. This is not some monstrosity of a mansion, even though their family wanted them to go, you know, other people on the outside would say, go buy a big house on the ocean and go do all that stuff. They were like, nope, we bought this house when we were 20, we worked our way. It's completely paid off. We don't have to worry about anything. But this is our house. We don't need to move from any of this kind of stuff just because Herman has worked his way up into some prestigious role or so it doesn't change who we are in our community or any of those kind of things, right? Yeah. So he, uh, he would the limo pick us up. We'd, we'd come home. We'd wait up for him. He'd get home at like 2 in the morning. He'd come home. He'd pour a glass of wine for himself and sit down with us because we were there for Christmas or whatever, right? It was his daughter, his oldest daughter, and mm -hmm. her boyfriend or whatever it might be or, you know, fiance at the time, whatever it was. And he'd sign all these papers <laughs> as he was talking to us about our trip or our lives or whatever was going on. He'd invest an hour at that time at 2 in the morning. And then at 5 in the morning, he'd be up again and he'd be walking into the room that I was staying in because, you know, at that time we weren't married or engaged. We were sleeping in different rooms, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm sleeping in this room. And he had so much clothes because he's a fashion uh, icon. And so he had 
two closets. So he had the extra room had all his clothes in it too, and all his shoes, his alligator shoes, and his matching Gucci belts and the whole. That was amazing. This guy's like Denzel, right? I was yeah. so jealous. I'm like, I'm never gonna live up this guy when I marrying his daughter here. But you know, he'd come in five in the morning, get all he'd suit up, and he. He'd be at the door, right? And, and he'd have a cup of coffee ready for his wife or teammate, or he'd do a few of those things, and, and out the door he would go. And so one day he's sitting with me, he's like, you know, Savior, you're, you're a lot like me. We, we, I, I, he's one of my greatest mentors, and I have a great relationship with him. And especially after losing my dad, he's become very, very close. And I think he's, he, you know, he'd said to me a long time ago, he's like, you're a lot like me. He's like, I see how much you give. I see how much you care about people. I see, I see your leadership qualities. He's like, the biggest thing you're gonna have to realize in your life is as much as you give to your work and your career and your community, you're required to give double at home. Wow. Right? And I was going to say that last night, but I'm like, oh, I don't want to blow people's minds too much now. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like now all heavy. of a sudden it's like, yeah, it's too heavy. But for me, as I got older in my career, I'd be like, wait a second, I have a responsibility to support my wife, who's smarter than I am and, and, and coaches me through a million things and has every right to have whatever she wants to have in life in that opportunity. I have a son who's different than me and, and maybe wants to do different things or, or, or be in different ways. And I have to learn to fit within this environment yeah. and support it. So it can't be about, it can't all be about me, yeah. right? And as an executive, the world can very much quickly turn to become all about you because you, you, you have the power in these environments to give people raises or to promote them or to help them get their next jobs. So everyone treats you with this, with this sometimes this love and this respect and this reverence. Um, that um, that I think can go to your head sometimes. And so when you go home, uh, it's important to understand that you're just like, you know, you have a responsibility there. Yeah. What job were you in when you realized this? Or was this before that? Um, I think I would have probably came to full realization of this stuff probably recently. Yeah, like yeah. You, it comes with age. It's, for I think sure. you know Bailey had a great point last night about the uh, about the office. Like, how do you know you're in the good times when you're in the good times? Yeah, right. That was a great a great thing, right? Like, how do you realize these things? Well, sometimes when you're in the hustle, you don't realize you're in the hustle. Yeah. So even though you're kind of conscious of these things, because I think these things would have been taught to me, fully comprehending and fully understanding it, I think doesn't come unless you get time to stop and reflect. Yeah. Right, and I think really for me, that's probably only happened in the last uh, in the last year of my life because it's just been a it's been a constant go. And so you're trying to take it in and you're trying to adjust, yeah. but you never implement it to the to its full capability or understand it because yeah. you've never really you don't you haven't put the time and the energy and the, giving yourself the space yeah. to reflect on it appropriately and then decide how you want to do it. And so we're talking downstairs that you certainly seem like you have more time now. You're watching more Seinfeld, a little bit of Letterman. I mean, I was. I was doing those things. I think for um, for part of um, uh, twenty, I guess twenty nineteen, like the first six months, I was like, I didn't really want to do anything and just yeah. just kind of get back into a, a groove of supporting my family. After you know, you're just away so much. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think that was um, that was an amazing, amazing thing for yeah. me to do. Like, yeah. um, you know, I don't I don't know how I recommend it to people, or, or I was fortunate enough to, to be able to uh, have those things allow that to happen. Where I didn't have to stress about anything or just just kind of go through being there for that. And uh, th that, I think, like you said, gave me a chance to watch some of these things and read a bit more and sleep a little bit. And I'd, I'd almost call it a bit of a detox. Yeah. If really. I would, right? I mean, yeah. really, like, um, you know, because, uh, you know, some of the roles I've had, you're, uh, and I, again, when you take the role, and again, this is something I, I hope I don't have to coach my kid on. But when, you're, when your family has to explain to you that you need to work 10 times harder to be better, okay? 
And the reason for that is you're different. Okay, and you're not going to be maybe fully accepted as, as equals. To, you're not really playing from, uh, not everyone's playing from first base. Yeah. Okay, so if you want to win and get the home run, you got to find a way to run faster. you got to find a way to do some things differently, whatever it might be. I think that, that mentality is hard to get out of you as a person. And it leads to what you said about, like, uh, you know, I had things where I'm like, okay, when I fly, I fly early. Like, I'm taking the, the 4 a.m., the 5 a.m., the 6 a.m., whatever it is. Mm. And I'm getting there before everything. And I, and I would get in these cars, and the taxi would drive me to the airport or something. I'd be going over the bridge, and the sun would just still be down, and it would be yeah. dark. And, I, you know, in my head, I'd be like, I'm in New York. And I'm, yeah. roll, and I'm rolling through, yeah. and I'm, 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 this is what leaders are supposed to do. They're up early. They're sacrificing. Yeah, they're for everybody else. They're for everybody else. I'd land in Toronto, and it would be 7 a.m. or something like that, or 7.30 a.m., and I would start with a 7.30 a.m. breakfast, and I would finish my day with probably like a 10 a.m. Uh, drink or, or coffee with somebody or something like that, and I would make two days feel like, try to feel like five. Yeah. Because I had a responsibility to try and grow whatever businesses and, and support employees and all those kind of things. How important is no, that? Not many other people, though. Yeah. Would have, like, and my wife would look at me and be like, you're, you're crazy. Like, why would you do this to yourself? Like, you know, like, um, like, um, but I felt a responsibility, I think. Um, and, and I couldn't, I couldn't break it. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so with that became, um, you know, sacrifices that were made. Mm. Um, and maybe I'll feel it later and, you know, my, my own health or, um, you know, challenges in, in, in working through uh, things at home and making sure I was there to support and do those kind of things. And I've got, again, an amazing partner who was always very honest with me about the things that I was delivering on and the things that I wasn't yeah. and the commitments that I had to make. And so I, I felt a lot of those things. And so, yes, there were some nights where you didn't sleep a lot or, yeah. um, you know, or you couldn't turn your mind off or, or, or those kind of things, which are real challenges for, I think, uh, leaders to have. And so I got to a place a little bit where I don't know the answer to balance, but I got a little bit to... Um, Leadership is a privilege, and with privilege is sacrifice. Sacrifice is a bit heroic. I'll, I'll, I'll make myself feel a bit like a hero and try and do it this way. Absolutely. And tell myself that's the reason. And maybe there's a bit of arrogance in that as well, too. I, you know, there's some, still some things that I've got to work out in terms of those things for myself, but that's what I would have probably told myself during those times to, to push myself and get me through. Yeah. And so as still being a leader um, of your current company, which is Green... Breathing Green Solutions. Breathing Green Solutions. Yeah. And what's the gist of that before I... So uh, that's uh, Nova Scotia's first licensed producer of cannabis uh, um, for recreational sale. Uh, they've got an amazing uh, brands uh, under Breathing Green and under the Scotia brand, which is sold at the Nova Scotia Liquor Corporation uh, cannabis uh, kind of locations throughout the province and online, um, expanding into more provinces and, and doing some awesome stuff. And, um, you know, it's an awesome company and, and I was able to, to meet them initially to join their board was, was the initial plan. And, uh, and I think I loved uh, what they talked about. I think they were very much connected to the type of leadership uh, that I would want to bring at the board level. And then as the company continued to scale and grow and, and, and opportunities, I think, um, you know, the chairman of the board and, and uh, was able to come to me and basically say, listen, we'd, we'd love for you to step into a president's role and, and provide some more leadership. And I'm, and I'm happy to do it in a way that fits the lifestyle and, and the way that you want to make it work. Yeah. Which I thought, to me, was music to my ears because I wasn't, my view was after, uh, you know, finishing up a role, I'd come back and just really look for corporate board opportunities to drive the change that I want to see from a board level down through executives and down through companies. And to really, because um, I've always done this as an employee, it's like, okay, um, 
you know, as a, as a minority who's worked so hard to get into some positions, I'm like, if I don't send the elevator back down, who's going to do it? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or if I don't help these people, like if I don't take the meeting with the kid in Preston, or if I don't take the meeting with the indigenous person, who is going to take the meeting with the indigenous kid? Yeah. So I'm like, I have a, resp I have a responsibility just because of how I was born yeah. to want to connect into some of these different groups that, that don't have these opportunities. And so... Um, at a corporate board level, I wanted to really push those type of ideas or convince or influence people with those type of ideas to change companies for the better in Atlantic Canada with, with those type of high-performance, diverse groups of people building amazing companies that we would be proud of for, for generations was the idea. And then, um, you know, so I got the board position with Breathing Green. I got elected at an AGM. I was, that was amazing. And then um, when the when they asked me to be president, and initially I was like, I'm not sh like, I, I wasn't sure, like, because I know the work effort and the and the responsibility required, but I think they've they found a way to make it work amazingly well for me, which I'm grateful for, and and they've got a great group of people and a great board and a great group of shareholders and a great product, yeah, which is I think one of the most important things in, in a new industry where I would say a lot of people have focused on just getting stuff to market yeah. because they know it's going to sell. Yeah. I think uh, uh, you know th what these guys have done is an amazing job of focusing on high, high quality product, uh, very premium, very focused, and now we can replicate that model in appropriate ways and, and scale appropriately to do that. So it's yeah, so awesome opportunity. So I feel blessed a bit. You know, in Nova Scotia, they've done a lot of amazing companies at the scale and size. I think there's a lot of amazing people and amazing companies. But, you know, this company, we have export opportunities there's, there's, you know, it's a, it's a new budding industry yeah. where where talent is going to help win. Yeah. And so I think we are able to get some talent from from this area, build their skills so that they go on and do amazing things in their lives, and and the tree and the cycle kind of continues from there. So I just feel very blessed and very fortunate to be be connected into that yeah. group. Yeah. Thank you. That answers yeah. the question yeah. I didn't even get to ask about it's how you transfer leadership into this this role. Yeah. Um, but on the note of, of of leadership and now on the company side of you guys being a leader uh, in the local industry what does product differentiation look like oh, in that's a great cannabis question. that's a great question there yeah so i think um there's gonna be more and more consumer research that bears out exactly what this mm. means uh but when i think of premium quality cannabis there's obviously your thc and your your cbd content you've got your cannabinoids and your terpenes that are going to be critical in terms of what people are looking for um you're going to have all your third-party lab testing to make sure everything is clean and all those things. Mm -hmm. But then I think you're going to get into things like pungency, so smell. Okay, so um, I'll use a simple analogy that I've used in the past. Um, uh, Breathing Green has a, a, a strain called Strawberry Sky, okay, that has strawberry kind of integrated into it. And so, I, and I love the strain. I love the strain. It's an amazing sativa strain. And so, if the research came back and said, we love the idea of strawberry, connected into our product. Mm -hmm. We would go back to our teams and say, how do we dial up the smell and the flavor uh, of strawberry right. in the cannabis from a science perspective? Yeah. So now our chief science officer, again, PhDs and amazing, amazingly talented people we work with, get to go to work from a science perspective and say, how do we yeah. tweak it? Because the people that we sell to in the segment and the market they want more strawberry dialed yeah. up in the strain, yeah. and then we, do, we and we deliver on that. So, so that would be like you know again, one of some pungency. You've got trichomes, you've got color, you've got types of. So, I think there's going to be a lot of different factors that the connoisseurs yeah. will check the box on in terms of what makes a premium product. But you know, we're moving into things like slow curing, 
right? So you're gonna get to, you're, you're gonna start to see. You know, really, but this becomes craft. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or like coffee roasting, almost. Well, and I always call it wine in some ways. Wine, is moving yeah. to, that, to those kind of things or microbreweries yeah. in that kind of area, right? Where you're going to get a very clear differentiation, ideally, in the quality of cannabis grown in massive facilities versus, versus in yeah smaller craft grows. Yeah. And so for people probably like me, who prefer uh, a story behind their brand something deeply connected in a smaller craft product that 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 that's amazing and i think yeah. the, the quality of that will speak for itself against what what's happening in some of the other stuff so i think um a lot of different factors i would say more research to be borne out but you know smokeability will be another one yeah. right as 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 for premium plower what the, what is the smoke like yeah do you know what i mean like so there's all these things that people are looking at from that perspective let alone as it moves into cannabis 2.0 and all the derivative products mm. so you're moving into drinks you're moving into edibles and all of the other things so um you know all the research will bear out again yeah those things one of the big things i think with 2.0 is onset and the management of what the um what the feelings and effects are going to be like if i drink this what is that actually going to do to me right now? Yeah. I'm not sure anyone really completely knows and, and going through this. So there's going to be some trial and error, and there's going to be a bunch of companies who slap something together, put it on the shelf. It will sell for the first whatever because there's nothing else to buy, maybe. Mm. But you and I know what will happen. Better products will come on the market with the appropriate thinking behind them. Mm -hmm. And then that product, will be at that, that product that was just there first will go away. Yeah. And the better product will end up end up taking that position. So I think that's that's yeah. kind of my view of it. So does that help? That does. I don't know um, the exact numbers, but I know like it was something like there's fifty percent alcohol consumption and then like two to six percent cannabis. Like in the general population, do you know like cause either way, either way, um, alcohol consumption is, is orders of magnitude higher than cannabis. Um, is that true? I don't think so. Really? I think, uh, I mean, there's so much black market. Yeah. Right? And I think, you know, when I think of, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the alcohol industry is is bigger. The opportunity in cannabis might be much, much, much bigger. Yeah. And that's because there's a medical side of this business. There's a recreational side of this business. Um, There are all the derivative products Mm. that can can be pushed out. And what you're seeing in alcohol, I think generally speaking, and I'm not an alcohol expert today, but um, a flatlining of general sales across most categories outside of like ready to drink. So the ready to drink of like a quick mix of vodka and and, and my soda or whatever it is, and I can can put that thing back, that's what the the evolution is in that space. But I think the evolution of alcohol has nowhere near the evolutionary potentials of a derivative product like like cannabis. Right, so cannabis can go into cosmetics. Cannabis can go into pet food. Cannabis, you know what I mean, like in mm. pet medicine. So when you think about all of the opportunities in industries, I haven't even talked about hemp. Mm. Do you know what I mean, right? I was right. My next question right. I haven't talked about hemp. Just talking about pure hemp. Yeah. And and cannabis, you have CBD and THC. Yeah. So you have, I think you have a much bigger, broader opportunity. Yeah. Than maybe the alcohol industry uh, overall. That might be my my view yeah. on it right now. And so, do you have any closing statements or remarks on that? Last piece of advice or future projections? Uh, I would say, um, you know, I guess what I'm excited for, uh, like I, I, t- I guess I talked a little bit about last night, is for is for your generation. Yeah. Uh, to, to to step in and. Um, and to be your best selves yeah. and, and to put your mark on the world, yeah. uh, I guess, is, is what I'm hoping for. And, and I'm really hoping that 
you are going to bang uh, into difficult things and difficult decisions and difficult people, right? And that is that is life. Yeah. And my hope within those environments that you can stay true to yourself, you can find the people around you who really do love you, yeah. and and who um, and who care about your well-being for all the right reasons. Um, and then you can make the best decisions to in the best interests of, 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 of humanity, I think, is like what we talked about yesterday. And I think, um, you know, my, my bigger worry, and I think it's, it, I think more and more people feel this, is that um, without that, there's no check and balance for some of the decisions and the things that are happening today. Yeah. And, um, and that doesn't put us in a good position, I don't think. Yeah, and I think it's the really important thing is is engaging the experienced uh, leaders like yourself, Mr. Savior Joseph, oh, with the youth to show us what we are capable of and, and what you have done and what you can achieve to then follow in your footsteps and, and stand on the shoulders of giants. Oh, I appreciate so, that very much, thank you. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Nice to see you, thank you. Awesome, okay, perfect. That was really good. I love somebody that is great interviewing. Oh, great, I appreciate that. I, was, I just feel like we just chatted, man.